Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Father, to stand here in a pulpit that has been faithful, as it were, for 130 years, and to see the fruit of a missionary that went out 111 years ago in 1890 is an awesome thing for me and a heavy weight of responsibility that it could be true for another 100 years. If you were merciful and faithful like you have been these 130 years of faithfulness to Bethlehem and among the Kachin people. So, Father, I ask for another 25 minutes of faithfulness and then what you will. Grant that the word would sound forth with power. Come. Open ears, hearts, minds to believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. This is one of the most famous and one of the most controversial texts in the book of Romans. It's got this famous verse 19 in it. The good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. So we have a, a kind of divided man here, right? A divided heart or mind. He says, uh, there's part of me, he calls it I, who wants to do good, doesn't want to do evil. And then he says, there's another part of me, he calls it I, who does not do the good that I want, but does the evil I don't want. And the controversy around this text is who is this man? That is, is it Paul the Christian or Paul the pre-Christian? Or maybe more precisely, 
Is it the morally conscience awakened pre-conversion Paul through the eyes of faith? Or is it the baby Christian carnal Paul before fullness? Or is it the mature Paul in a lapsed condition of temporary failure? Now, the biblical commentators spread out all over the map on these interpretations, and I'm not going to tell you this morning which I think is correct, but I will later. What I want to do this morning is... uh, prepare you to handle this ambiguity and then tell you why I think the main point of the text doesn't depend on it. So first, what do you do with it? I don't think that your total view of the Christian life has to be ruined by getting one text wrong. In other words... You could choose wrong on this text and have an absolutely excellent understanding of the Christian life as a total. Because there's so many other passages that ought to feed into your understanding of the Christian life. So, for example, you could say, this text is not about Christian experience. And yet still believe Christians have these kinds of experiences. But that's just not what this text is talking about. Or you could say, this text is about Christian experience, but that's not normative for Christian experience. The Bible holds out a lot higher hope for how to live than in that defeated condition. So you, what you decide on this text does not make or break the totality of what you see the New Testament to be teaching about How mature, how strong, how successful, how victorious the Christian life can be. It'll be a piece of it, but you could get this one wrong and have a very good view. Or you could have a very bad view and get this one right. That's just the way the Bible is, which means you better be careful about any preacher or anybody who builds their whole view of anything on one solitary text Because most cults and most quirky interpretations come from people like that. Can't find it anywhere else, but I know it's here. Well, beware of that. Now, Romans 7, 14 to 25 has a main point. And that's what I want to get at this morning. And amazingly, and this is a great comfort to me, I don't think the main point rises and falls on that issue. And I'll try to show you that before we're done. In other words, you could choose interpretation one, this is Christian experience being described here, or interpretation two, no it isn't. This is the pre-Christian Paul being described here. And still know exactly what the main point of this text is and agree with all those others that this is the main point. So, 
Let's try to get at what the main point of the text is. That is, what's the, what's the point of Romans 7, 14 to 25 in the flow of the book of Romans? The main point of the book of Romans is this. All sinful human beings, that is, all human beings, have fallen short of the glory of God and thus bring daily dishonor to God. And therefore are under the wrath of God righteously. It is just of God to pour out his wrath upon people who are sinners and bring daily dishonor to him. Nevertheless, it is possible because of what God provided in Jesus Christ, his only son, for sinners under the wrath of God to be set right with God because of Jesus by faith alone. That's the point of the book of Romans. Paul's answer to the greatest human problem in the world, namely the sinful guilt of all humans before a holy God, is that God himself provided a righteousness. Not our own, a righteousness, which he would credit to or impute to us if we would trust Christ and receive it as our treasure. We call it justification. Paul calls it justification. By grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the main point of the book of Romans. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I want you to see it from his own lips. He's the one who's inspired I'm a pointer. Romans 4, 5, and 6. But to the one who does not work, but believes, there's faith, not work, but believes him who justifies, sets right with God, justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of a blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Notice that enormously important word, credits. This is where we get the doctrine of imputation. Another word for credit is reckon or count or impute. So let's notice the two things that he says. They're a little different, but they wind up saying the same thing. Verse 5, at the end, faith is credited, counted, reckoned, imputed as righteousness. End of verse 6, God credits righteousness apart from works. In verse 5, faith is focused, and in verse 6, righteousness is focus. 
Righteousness is being credited in one. Faith is being credited as righteousness in the other. What does that mean? This is the the glorious gospel truth. That God provides a righteousness that is not our righteousness. And then counts that righteousness through faith to be our righteousness. So when you read in verse 6. He credits righteousness to us apart from works. That's the same as saying he credits faith as righteousness because faith is the instrument or the channel through which that righteousness is credited to us. Now, here's the question to fill out the gospel. Whose righteousness is it? If you die this afternoon... Awesome thought to face the judge this afternoon. No more church services to go to, no more books to read, no more tracks to ponder, no more radio programs, just Jesus, the judge of the universe, infinite, flaming in holiness. What are you gonna, what's your claim gonna be? You're a sinner. There's not a righteous person in this room. Everybody in this room is ungodly. Sinful, bringing disrepute upon Jesus every day and probably every hour of every day by virtue of falling short of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what are you going to say? Whose righteousness will commend you to God? That's a really important question. And the gospel in the book of Romans is written to reveal to you the answer to that question. Let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, there's your answer, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, namely, the righteousness of God through faith... In Jesus Christ for all who believe. So a righteousness is manifested now in history. And it comes to you. Not to damn you. But to save you through faith in Jesus Christ. But let's be more specific. Chapter 10 verse 3. If you want to go there with me you can see it. Not knowing about God's righteousness that was just referred to in 3.21 and 22. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking, therefore, to establish their own. Don't do that. After this moment, you should not be ignorant and therefore should not fall into a self-righteousness effort. You can't do it. There is no righteousness you can ever perform that will commend you to him. Forget that. Don't make the mistake of chapter 10, verse 3. Being ignorant, not knowing the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own and did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? Right there in your pew, right now. How are you doing that? Or are you? 
Are you subjecting yourself right now to the righteousness of your own? Or are you construing your attendance in this room as the establishment of a righteousness which will get the smile of God on your side? What is the subjection to the righteousness of God? Don't make up an answer. Get it from the Bible. It's in verse 4. Because or for, I'm going to give a very literal rendering of this now. It's so important, I think, to get this exactly the way Paul wrote it. For the end or the goal, don't think it matters too much whether you take it as end or goal here, of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the literal word-for-word translation. For the end or the goal of the law is Christ for righteousness. For whom? To whom? Believers. So if you ask now, what does it mean to subject yourself to the righteousness of God in verse 3? Answer, the law that you're all trying to keep to establish your own righteousness. He's talking to somebody who's doing that. You're all trying to keep this law and establish your righteousness. Don't you understand the law, the goal, the telos, the end of the law is Christ for righteousness. How? Through belief. So the subjecting of yourself to the righteousness of God is the recognition that God's righteousness is Christ for righteousness. Christ worked out our righteousness. Christ is the manifestation of God's righteousness. Christ is the performance of God's righteousness. And the law is pointing to that. That's the goal. That's the end. So when you look at the law, be sure you don't fixate there and begin to use it to establish your righteousness. Let it point you to what it's all about. Christ for righteousness. And then how do you get that? For everyone who, finish it, believes. This is the gospel. This is the book of Romans. There's not a righteous person in this room this morning. And we're all going to die. And we're all going to stand before an absolutely righteous, holy, perfect, flaming God of holiness. Who cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And if anybody will be accepted, it will be because they... Believe and therefore have imputed to them an alien righteousness, not their own, Christ's. Which is why I think verse 19 of chapter 5 means this. I'll just read it to you and you can decide whether you think in the light of these things it means this. Romans 5:19. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, that's why this is relevant everywhere in the world, among every people group in Myanmar or Tanzania or Congo or Cameroon or wherever, downtown Minneapolis. As through one man's disobedience, many were made or constituted or appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of one, Christ. Through the obedience of one, many will be now made righteous. I take that to mean that Christ so obeyed the law in his life, in his death, 
And he's still obeying the law perfectly and always will obey the law perfectly. And thus he embodies in himself all of God's righteousness, obeying God's law, enabled by God's power, living for God's glory, a perfect embodiment of everything God intended humankind to be. Through that obedience, many may be made righteous by one means alone, union with him by faith, so that his righteousness becomes mine. That's my only plea. That's my only plea when I stand before it. Which is summed up by Paul like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the climax. This is the most beautiful statement of it all, I think. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes like this. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for our sakes. So that in Him, and you get in Him by faith, so that in Him... You might become the righteousness of God. Now, don't miss the parallel here. It is so absolutely crucial that you understand your becoming righteousness the way he became your sin. Don't get this wrong. How did he become sin? He, he did not sin when he became sin. And you are not righteous when you become righteous. Chapter 4, verse 5, he justifies the ungodly. Thank you. He justifies the ungodly. So, just as Jesus was credited with my sin, I get Credited with his righteousness. Which is the righteousness of God. That's Romans. That's Romans. Uh, It's the gospel, folks. It's the gospel. Oh, I pray that it lands on you right now. I pray that it lands on you as the sweetest message you could ever hear. So that you get up like a lion on Tuesday morning and go back to work. An ungodly, bold lion. Because if you wait around to become righteous before you're bold, you will never be bold. In fact, if you worry that at work somebody is going to say back to you when you celebrate the justification of God in Christ... You don't look much better than anybody else. You're going to say, I know it, and isn't that great? Let me tell you about grace. Let me tell you about the cross. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about justification of the ungodly. Don't let that push you away. Use it. Use your sin. I mean, if you can't, you will never testify to Jesus. Ever. It's all you are. You will never be beyond sin. Until... The last day, when in the twinkling of an eye, you are changed completely. 
Yeah, we can grow, but frankly, after 46, no, 49 years of, 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 of living and walking with Jesus, I'm not impressed with John Piper in the least. All right? Less today than ever. My sense of being able to commend myself to God in that moment is more terrifying to me today than ever. Apart from Jesus, I know a little more about the wickedness of my sin. The subtlety of pride. The deceitfulness of the human heart. The quickness of a critical tongue. You will never be bold for Jesus if you wait to get good. And the whole thing that drove the early church and made them lion-hearted was not how good they were, but the glory of their Savior. The glory of the righteousness of Jesus. Well, the point of this message is chapter 7. And we haven't got there yet. But I only have one thing to say. is this. Paul has now spent five or six chapters digging a hole for himself in regard to the law. Because he's, he said things like, we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. Or 520, the law came in so that transgressions would increase. He even went so far to say in chapter 7 verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law so that you might be united to Christ and bear fruit for God. So... The law is increasing sin, and you've got to die to that law in order to bear fruit for God. You've got to turn away from the law to be justified by faith. You've got to die to the law to be sanctified by the Spirit. This law is a... And he's in trouble. It sounds like sin, and it sounds like death. And if the law is sin, there is no gospel. In other words, verses... Chapters 1 to 6 fail if 7 can't rescue the law. And that's why 7 is written. Look at, look at chapter 7, verse 7. What, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? After all my celebration of grace, after all my celebration of Christ and His obedience, after all my statements that you've got to die to the law and turn away from the law and believe is the law sin? If the answer to that question is yes, there is no gospel. Or look at verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good, namely the law, become a cause of death for me? If the answer to that question is yes, Paul is history. There is no gospel. If the gospel of justification by faith that I have just celebrated for the last 20 minutes implies law is sin and law is poison, it is false. And I'm a false teacher. 
And you shouldn't believe it because there's no hope in it because it damns the word of God. Therefore, he's in a hole because he made it look like sin and he made it look like poison. So he's digging himself out in chapter 7. He's climbing out of his hole. As far as he's concerned, he was never in a hole. And if you're smart enough, you wouldn't get in the hole with him that he's not in. But if you're a Judaizer or a Pharisee, you're just clucking your tongue at the hole he's got him in, got himself in, and he cares about you and writes a whole chapter to help you realize he's not in the hole and you should get out. That's the point of the chapter. Now, I made one point at the beginning. I'm going to end with this point. I said the main point of Romans 7 stands whether the person being spoken of there is a Christian. What I want to do, I don't do. Or a pre-Christian. What I want to do, I don't do. Whichever of those you come down on, and I will come down with one next week probably. This point stands. Let me try to say it in closing again so you can see it. Well, first, maybe just direct your attention to um, verse 14 of chapter 7. The law is spiritual. I am of flesh. I'm the problem, not the law. You see what he's saying? Verse 16. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. I'm the problem, not the law. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law is joy, the law is spiritual, the law is good. I'm the problem. That's the point of this chapter. The point of this chapter is to vindicate the law, to show that it is good, it is spiritual, it is holy, it is just, it is joyful. That's Romans 7. Now, why does he have to do it? Because he's defending justification by faith alone. Because his whole doctrine of justification by faith alone has made the law look like sin and death. And if the law is sin, God's a sinner. And if the law is death, God's a killer. And if God's a sinner and a killer, there's no gospel from this God. And so he's got to vindicate the law to make his gospel of justification by faith apart from the law stand. And that's exactly what he succeeds in doing, whether the person is a Christian or a non-Christian. Because the point is, indwelling sin is what makes me sin and what kills me. And that's true whether I'm a believer or whether I'm a pre-believer. Sin is the culprit here. So here is your closing good news. When you walk out of here and you say, okay, I think what he said was, (laughs) I'm not sure, but he said it one last time just as we were leaving. I think what he said was to get right with God that is justified, you got to turn away from the law and law keeping And trust an alien righteousness provided by God in Jesus Christ. And he said, 
to bear fruit for God, chapter 7, verse 4, that is to get sanctified, if you like the big words, to bear fruit for God, like love, become a loving person, he said, you got to die to the law and be united to the Christ who has risen from the dead so that spiritually you are bearing fruit for God and not depending on law-keeping. And then he said, and neither of those two turnings away from the law is because the law is sin or poison. And Romans 7 is written to prove that and thus rescue the doctrine. Therefore, I plead with you. In fact, I beseech you in the name of Jesus and on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Embrace the alien righteousness that is offered you right now as you sit in your pew. God holds out his hands to you right now. I have provided a complete and perfect salvation. I have provided a complete and perfect substitute death and substitute righteousness in my son. Just believe me. Trust me. Receive it as the treasure of your life. And you will be right with the living God. Let's pray. Lord, as we go now into this Memorial Day weekend, and then on into our work week, make us as bold as a lion by faith in the all-providing, all-obedient, all-righteous Christ. Teach us this, Lord, in the bottom of our hearts, I pray. Would you stand for a closing benediction? And now may the grace of God, the Father, and the love of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest on you all now and all through the weekend and into your work week and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.